Good evening, church. Uh, today's Bible reading is taken from Revelation 15 and 16. I'm reading from the ESV UK. It reads as follows. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be the sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Will not fear, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, and golden sashes round their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven gold balls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until, until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go out and pour Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people for who bore the mark of the beast and worship its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of the corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water saying, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and, and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord the Almighty. True and just are your judgment. The fourth angels poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People nod and their tongues in anguish, and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. For their pain and sores, they did not repent for their deeds. The next angel, the sixth angel, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up the, the, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the Mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for the battle on the great day of the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Keep his garments on, 
that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the, the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there was flashes there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth, so great that was was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstone about one hundred pounds each fell from heaven on people, and they cast God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of God. Thank you. And know, guys, it's good to have you again here this evening. We are, as you see, in Revelation 15 and 16. Now, I just want to remind you that what we have been doing through this book is a thematic study. So we have looked at a number of themes in the book. Uh, we looked at the sovereignty of God when we looked at chapter 1. We looked at chapter 2 and 3. We looked at chapter 4 and 5 as well. And as you continue reading the book, you will realize uh, a phrase that I particularly used over and again, which was this phrase, that the book of Revelation is showing us that God is sovereign over history, and that God is sovereign over death, and that God is sovereign in judgment. This is something that you will see reoccurring over and again in the book. And tonight, our focus will be on Jesus' sovereignty in judgment. As you can see, the recap phrase there is, for us to see, I hope you, you see it in your papers, the recap phrase for us is, God is in control. Jesus has conquered, which is what chapter 4 and 5 reminded us of. And history is going somewhere, which is what we will see today. It has a predetermined end, an end that was determined by God, an end that God knows. And the end is this, Jesus and his people win. See, John, as he writes to these churches, one of the things that he does so clearly through the words of Jesus and the words of the Spirit is that he comforts those who are wounded, those who are facing persecution, who are struggling with suffering. And what he also does is he wounds the comfortable, those who do not see Jesus as being pivotal or important in their life. And he calls them to repent, especially if they're in the church. But he calls them to repent when they're outside as well. And again, like I said, what, we'll, what we will see so clearly today is Jesus' sovereignty in judgment. Let, let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Our Father, we do pray that this evening you'd remind us once again of the sovereignty of Jesus, the lamb that was slain. Lord, would you show us through his sacrifice how he has achieved victory over all the forces of evil, over the beast and the dragon who come, up, who come against him and his people. Would you so clearly remind us tonight of how Jesus, or the victory rather, belongs to Jesus. 
And this we do pray in your name. Amen. Now, if hypothetically there was to be a list of bad, dirty, or offensive words uh, that should not be used in the church, see, I think the word that would make part of that list would be the word judgment. See, whenever the word judgment comes up in a conversation, it is a conversation killer. This word is the high-speed king of killing or ending most, if not all, conversations. See, whenever the word comes up, people suddenly become uncomfortable, just like you are at this moment. And they look for the quickest way out of the conversation. So they'll be there sitting with you and you'll hear someone saying, Oh, hey, I I forgot to do so-and-so, or or rather my phone, because they'd rather get away from that conversation. They come up with all sorts of excuses not to be in that conversation. I hope I have not given you any ideas. See, most people in the church would rather have silence. They'd rather be silent as it relates to this topic of judgment because whenever it is mentioned, it sends shivers down people's spines. See, it generates the kind of reaction that you see in two franchise movies where the characters uh, in these two movies are never to be mentioned. I'm quite certain you can think of the movies in your head already. Harry Potter and The Lion King. In Harry Potter, there's a character who is referred to as he who must not be named. See, whenever he's mentioned, Voldemort, the response is usually, we do not speak of his name. Do not speak his name. Silence. Or if you remember the scenes from The Lion King, whenever Mufasa's name is mentioned, especially by the hyenas, you can see that particular scene, the three hyenas and Scar, And the hyenas who don't seem at all like they're scared of Scar, whenever Mufasa's name is mentioned, you can see that reaction of shivers being sent down their spines. Mufasa. Ah. Say it again. Say it again. Mufasa. (laughs) Brilliant movies, eh? But you see it in those movies that Those names are names that are not to be mentioned. And I think in the church, you see a similar reaction when it comes to this topic of judgment. It is a topic that people would rather not have mentioned or to talk about. And I'm sure you have noticed that today, that that's not what we are doing here. Because we are talking about it. Our passage tonight talks about judgment. And I think what needs to be considered when it comes to this very topic, is this. If we only ever talk of a God who is loving, but a God who does not judge, then how do we make sense of all the injustices, the corruption, the wickedness, the suffering, and the apparent satanic oppression that we see in our world? How do we make sense of those? So here are a few headlines from this past week. More than 50 people beheaded by ISIS-linked attackers in Mozambique. Nigerian Christian killed in Fulani ambush attack. SA has a serious gender-based violence problem. Where we too high on the rainbow to see the dark clouds lurking. Now that is talking about 
a particular school in Cape Town. I'll, I'll choose not to continue the story. I think you know what I'm talking about. Now let's bring it a lot closer, closer to home. I mean, how do you make sense of the fact that when you look around, it seems as though the people who worship the beast, as David told us last week, the people who have chosen to reject Jesus seem to be prospering and winning. How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of the fact that those who follow the Lamb, those who have pledged allegiance to Jesus, seem to be losing? Now think of the Christian. Now this does not happen often, but it does happen. But think of the Christian who is ignored for a promotion in his work because of his moral or ethic code, who decides they will not do anything that goes against the pattern, the life that this lamb calls them to. Think of the Christian who is shunned by his family because he has decided to follow Jesus. See, I don't think that it is possible to make sense of our world and all the corruption we see, all the wickedness, all the brokenness without talking about the God who loves and also judges because he loves. And as we come to our topic today, as we come to this passage that tells us of the judgment of the Lamb or the wrath of the Lamb, we will see what John does so clearly. He points to us that actually... In the judgment that the Lamb brings, there's also salvation for those who have put their faith in him. So it's interesting that when you read all throughout the Bible, this is what you see. You would have noticed a bit earlier, we decided to read a passage from Exodus. And this is because John, a number of times here in Revelation, adopts language from Exodus. And if you remember anything about the story of the Exodus, especially the passage we just read, in the judgment of Egypt... We also see the salvation of God's people. There are two things that are, happy, that are happening at the same time. And as we come to our passage to, today as well, we will see this. How these two things are two sides of the same coin. See, Jesus, the lamb who was slain, will judge those who follow the beast. While also vindicating those who have put their trust in him. And also vindicating his name. Now, as usual, I have three points in our passage today. Nothing different. <laughs> Nothing different. Three points, as usual. And the three points are the ones that you have in front of you. And you'll notice that the second one actually also has three points. <laughs> our first point is the scroll of the Lamb. Our second point is the judgment and salvation uh, the judgment and the salvation is our second point. Our third point is the blessing of staying awake. Let's go to our first point, the scroll of the Lamb. Now, one of the things you're probably wondering about is the passage we've just read today speaks of plagues, and it speaks of seven bowls. So where does the idea of the scrolls come from? Where does the idea of the scroll come from? Well, if you have been following in Revelation with us, you would have heard me say this. And if I've not said it enough, I want you to hear this. The two chapters that hold this book together are Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Those are the two chapters that hold this book together. Without these two chapters, this book doesn't make much sense. See, even chapter 21 and 22, where we see the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth, do not make sense without 
Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Now, what did we talk about in Revelation chapter 4 and 5? That's something we've got to go back and see if we remember. Well, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we saw the one who sits on the throne and is worshipped in song. And the one who sits on the throne is said to be the creator of the world and is worshipped for that very purpose. But what we see in chapter 5 is that uh, next to the one who, who sits on the throne, there's a scroll at his right hand. And this scroll details God's judgment and his salvation. But if you remember anything, there was no one who was worthy to open the scroll. And so John wept at that very thought. But he was told thereafter that the, the lamb who was slain is worthy to pilot, is worthy to administer God's judgment and God's salvation. But again, what does that have to do? Where, where is the link between the scroll and the bowls? You're probably wondering, Reggie, show me, where is the link? Well, let me point it out to us. See, in chapter 4, in chapter 5 and 6, if you would turn to those very chapters, you will see something that's very interesting there. We are told about the lamb who comes, who is worthy to open the scroll. And from chapter 6 onward, we are told about the seven seals. If you move on a bit later to chapter 8, you will see that we are told about the seven trumpets. And in our passage today, we are told about the seven bowls. See, all these three things are actually the cycles of God's judgment in Revelation. See, there are three cycles here, or three sets of judgment. The first is the seals, the second is the trumpets, and the third is the bowls. See, what we are meant to see here is John is showing us that God's judgment comes in three sets of sevens. And you would notice that these are closely linked because of the imagery that is very similar, imagery that is from Exodus, and patterns that are very similar as well, and endings that are similar. Let me show you the endings so that you would see this with me. So I said the seven seals started chapter 6, but in chapter 7 there's an interruption. And when we get to chapter 8, we see that the seals continue. Read with me in verse 5 and listen to how the end of the seals is described. Then the angel took the sea, the censer rather, and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were pearls of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and earthquakes. Now, if you would open to the trumpets that I said, start in chapter 8, but end in chapter 11. Look at chapter 11, verse 19, and look at how it ends. Then God's temple in heaven, this is chapter 11, verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashings of lightnings, ramblings, pearls of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now notice how in our passage today in chapter 16, actually the servant bows end in the very same way. Chapter 16, verse 18. Listen to what John says to us there. And there were flashings of lightnings, rumblings, pearls of, of thunder, and a great earthquake such that there was never, there had never been since man was on earth. So that the, so great was the earthquake. I'm not, so, I'm not sure if you pick up the similarity in language. All of them end in the same way. And John does this purposefully to show us the close link between these three. 
But how, to, but how are we to understand them is the question that you and I should ask. Well, in the church, people have explained these in two different ways. Some have said that these are chronological or linear. They follow one after the other. So the first two seals tell us of God's partial judgment before his final judgment comes on the earth through the bowls. And so they would say that in the seals and trumpets, there's an opportunity for people to repent and come to know Jesus, but that there will be a final one where there will be no chance for repentance. That's the view some people would take, that these three are chronological. Well, some people will take a different view, and this is the view that these are parallel, or rather they overlap onto each other. See, if you would read all of them, you would realize that at the end of the seals, there's an introduction of the trumpets immediately, right there and then. If you go and read in chapter 8, you will see that. And when you go to chapter 11, you will see how the trumpets overlap with the, with the bowls, which become much clearer in chapter 16. So it seems clear here that what is happening here is John is telling us of God's judgment from three different perspectives or three different angles. See, this is one judgment. This is one event that is told to us from three different angles. The first event is the seals tells us of God's judgment from the perspective of the suffering churches, whereas the trumpets tells us of God's judgment from the perspective of the world that follows the beast, whereas the third tells us of of God's judgment from the perspective of the throne, from God's perspective. Now, I think the easiest way to illustrate this would be to ask, are there any sports fans in here? Soccer, foot, okay, soccer, football, whatever you want to call it. Cricket, F1, basketball. Have you guys ever heard of something called action replay in sports? You guys know what it's about. That you walk in and you realize that it's, it's showing you an event that has happened already. And very often what would happen is they would give you that very event from a different perspective. Now, some were hoping that I would not talk about this, but I will. Uh, football. Let's talk about Orlando Pirates and Kaiser Chiefs. <laughs> Blasphemy. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about that. Pirates scored five goals past Chiefs. I mean, it's in two different games. But imagine that the only way that you'd only seen soccer like live, you'd never seen action replays before. And for the first time, you walk into a room and you see Orlando Pirates scoring against Chiefs. And you see an action replay of the very same goal from three different angles. If you do not understand what action replays are, you would think within that very moment or those seconds that Pirates has actually scored against Chiefs multiple times. But if you understood it, you would realize that what the action replay is showing you is is one event but from three or, three or five or more different angles. And actually, John, in our passage today, is doing that as well. He's showing us God's judgment from different angles. The big word that is used for this is, I'll say it a little bit slowly so I do not bite my tongue. It is called recapitulation. But I'll stick to saying it is the doubling up or doubling back of information by repeating the same main points. See, John here is as if he's going down a spiral. 
and goes back to the same point over and again to show us how these three things are similar and are showing us God's judgment on the, on the world and actually all end in the same way. They all do. They all end in showing how God is sitting on the throne and administers his justice and his salvation for his people. Now, you may be asking, why is this important? I think it is important for various reasons. Now, I'm inclined more to the second opinion that says these are parallel. This is why I think it is important. It makes us cautious as we come to reading Revelation. It means you and I don't come here and go to the seals and say, oh, that has happened already. And then go to the trumpets and say, oh, has this happened? Because we are waiting for what will happen with the bowls. Because that's what people do. They come to this book and, and, and read it as almost a code and say, look, that has happened, that has happened, meaning we are waiting for what would happen with the bowls. But that's not what John is doing. And so we've got to be careful that we do not come to the book and try and figure out when the world ends. But two, it also means that you and I do not say with utter confidence that when we see a natural disaster that God is judging the world. Now, some Christians are very comfortable to say that, that COVID-19 is God judging the world. God is calling the world to repent through this very event. Now, I think what John is showing us here causes us to come to events like this with caution. Listen to this quote from an author from Desiring God on an article that was written on just COVID-19. Listen to what he says. So, Should we say that COVID-19, worldwide civil unrest, and international economic troubles, the international economic troubles we are facing today are God's judgment on the world? Well, as we have seen it, we have no grounds for saying yes to this question if we mean that we know these crises are God's judgment on one group of people for one specific sin. We do not simply have access to God's mind on this. But we also have seen that the answer is most definitely yes. That this is God's judgment on a world in the way that Revelation explains God's judgment. And Revelation explains God's judgment in this way. All of these events are from the same angle. But all of them tell us of God's judgment from all of history up until the time that Jesus returns. So we can say, maybe it is, but we can't say it with confidence. We can say that through these crises that God is calling the world to come back to him. But we can't say he's calling a particular people to repent because of their particular sin. I love what John Wesley says in describing what happens at the end, in telling us of the end that God is leading his world to. Listen to this quote. He says, The cloud of glory was visible, was the visible manifestation of God's presence in the tabernacle and temple. It was a sign of protection at erecting the tabernacle and dedicating of the temple. But in the judgment of Korah, the glory of God appeared when he and his companions were swallowed up by the earth. So, the proper, so proper is the emblem of smoke from the glory of God or from the, from the cloud of glory to express the execution of judgment as well as a sign of favor. Both proceeded from the power of God, and in both God is glorified. So what we are meant to see is in God judging the world before Jesus returns, yes, he is glorified in some coming, coming to him and repenting. But... 
God is most glorified at the end when he then judges those who follow the mark of the beast and saves those who belong to him. And this then now moves us to our second point, which is the judgment and salvation. Now again, it is good for us to see that the judgment and salvation are paired together here. There are two sides of the same coin. Here John echoes to us the exodus where God destroys Egypt and their military and economic power, but saves his people. But to understand this, we have got to follow those three points that are in front of you. Who, who is it that gets God's judgment? Who's the target of God's judgment? That's one. That's the first thing we've got to ask. Two, what's the nature of God's judgment? And three, what is the result of God's judgment? As we talk about his judgment and salvation. Let's start with the very first one. Who is the target of the lamb of God's uh, judgment? Come to me again to chapter 16, and let's read verse 2 together. Look at what John tells us in chapter 2, in, chap- in verse 2 of chapter 16. He says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and the harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now that's a very complicated phrase there. Who are the ones who bear the mark of the beast? Because this helps us to understand clearly who are the ones who face God's judgment. Who are they? Well, some people have said it is, they've taken this back to Nero and have said, excuse me, Nero, Caesar, and the word beast, actually in the Hebrew word, all form 666. So if you remember the word from David from last week, archetype, that Nero is the archetype of those who oppose Jesus. That's what some people would say. And so they would say those who have the mark of the beast are those who, like Nero, oppose Jesus and his kingdom. That's what they would say. But here's a much better view to understand who are the ones who, who have the mark of the beast. In the Old Testament, it is said that the prayer that the Jewish people prayed, which is called the Shema, this prayer that they prayed from Deuteronomy, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, uh, the Lord our God is one and the only Lord. See, that prayer was said to be a prayer that is bound around their hand. And a prayer that is, that serves as a symbol on their forehead that is between their eyes. So the, the Shema, which showed people who followed Jesus, followed God rather in the Old Testament, was a sign of people who followed God in the Old Testament because they had this prayer in their forehead and around their hands as well. It's interesting to see that the ones who have the mark of the beast, if you read in chapter 13 and 14, you'll see especially in chapter 13, it's that the mark is on their forehead on their hand. And it mirrors what we see in the Shema. And so very often these people have been called to, they've been said to be people who are the anti-Shema. They reject God as the one and only Lord. And they reject Jesus who is slain. So this refers to people who do not want Jesus as king, who do not want him as God. Now, a little bit earlier in the year when the COVID-19 started, a lot of people got anxious about a particular billionaire 
and the vaccine that he proposed because they thought that the vaccine had a chip that would give them the mark of the beast. And, and I mean, people were terrified. And you understand that. You understand that people get nervous about seeing such things. But we see here so clearly that the mark is not physical, but the mark is shown in a life that is patterned after rejecting Jesus. That is the mark of those who follow the beast, those who have the mark of the beast. It is those who reject Jesus. And you and I see it in various ways in our workspaces, our family, and the world. We see it in the people who live as their own kings, who have no moral compass at work. They will step on anyone just to get to the top. It does not matter. They will step on anyone to get to the top. We see it in the people that persecute Christians. And we see it as well, and this is not mentioned enough, in the mistreatment of God's image and God's creation. So we see it in the, in the rape cases of our country. We see it in the murder in our country. We see there, in a sense, the mark of the beast. Those who have decided to reject Jesus and live life their own way as, as gods and kings of their very own lives. So those are the people that are, are the target of God's judgment. But we've got to talk about the nature of God's judgment. How does it look like? Look at chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. We'll just read that. Um, actually, in chapter 16, something is mentioned as well. But let's just read chapter 15 from verse 3. The nature of God's judgment is just. Listen to chapter 15, verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone... For you alone are holy. All the nations will come to you and worship you. For, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And a little bit later we are told as well in chapter 16 that yes, the Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is chapter 16, verse, verse 7. So the first thing we see about the nature of God's judgment is that it is just. There's no one who can come to God and say, and accuse God of being wrong in his judgment. Because as we will see in the next few verses, God actually gave people an opportunity to repent by bringing his son. But most decided to not believe in him. Actually, because God's judgment is true and just, all humanity actually deserves his judgment. But those who have put their trust in the Lamb have a mark. They have a red post that says God will pass over them. But those who have not turned to the Lamb cannot accuse God of not being just in his judgments. He's just in his judgments. Now, I'll read a quote a little bit later that shows us of this. Notice the second thing about the judgment. It is deserved. That's shocking. We don't like talking about judgment, but here's the thing that we should see about this judgment. It is deserved. See, people face the consequences of their sins and the rebellion against Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain, by not turning to him and not turning to God. Look at chapter 16, verse 6. For they have shed blood, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. 
Verse 10 reads as follows. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne on the throne of the beast, and, and, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their, their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The end of verse 11, same thing. They did not repent of their deeds. You see this over and again. They did not repent of their deeds. It is clear that God's judgment is deserved because people did not turn to God when he gave them the opportunity to do so. Chuck Smith, excuse me, puts it this way. Throughout this series of judgments, it is asserted that God's judgments are righteous. Similarly, we see throughout the passage the consistency of men's rebellion as they have blasphemed and did not repent. God's judgment is righteous because man's stubbornness is unyielding. God has done everything he can to save mankind. Jesus died for the people, and yet, even when they experience the result of their sins, some of them just won't repent. Nothing God can, nothing God does can bring them to repentance. And so they, might be, they must be destroyed, which is scary. There is no other righteous thing that God can do. See, what is interesting when you read through Revelation is that it is actually not God's judgment that causes people to repent. It is two things that you see as you read through the book that causes people to repent. One, it is the Holy Spirit's conviction. And two, it is the witness of the people of the Lamb. See, it is through the people of the Lamb, not denying the Lamb, even when they are persecuted, even when they're facing suffering, that people realize that there's a God that these people are worshiping. To turn to. It's interesting that when you read this, that it is the suffering of God's people that causes the, 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 those who are part of the nations to turn back to God. Now, the third thing I wanted to mention in terms of the nature of uh, God's uh, judgment, it is, it is uh, in terms of destruction, but because we do not have time, we'll move on from that, from that one. The one that I want us to see now is the purpose or the result of God's judgment. So the result or the purpose of God's judgment is that he vindicates his name and vindicates his people. So God ultimately proves to be true as the one who saves and as the God who has created and as the God who owns every human being. As the God every human being should turn their allegiance to. God ultimately at the end proves himself to be just and true. And he proves himself to be just and true as well in vindicating his people who have trusted in him so that these people when they sing, King of heaven, come, King of heaven, come down because they have cried from the suffering they faced. These people at the end find God's salvation because God proves at the end that they were right by banking their all on him. And you see, for us today as well, this is what we are called to, to bank our all on Jesus. Because this is the way we conquer. We bank our all on Jesus because at the end, Jesus will vindicate his name and vindicate his people. Our last point, which will not be too long, the blessing of staying awake. Now, what is the idea of staying awake that Jesus mentions when you read in verse 15 of chapter 16? 
He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not be, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. If you remember the message to the churches, Jesus says to a few of the churches, one, the church in Sardis, he calls them to wake up. And the church in Laodicea as well is called to wake up and to repent. See, the idea of waking up is the idea of living a life that is faithful to Jesus. Or staying awake, that's what it looks like. Staying awake is following Jesus until the very end. So if you remember our messages to the three different church, or the seven different churches, we had three points there. There was a church that prioritized zeal over love. See, for them, staying awake would be making sure that as they share the gospel, that they do it in a way that is loving to those in the church and those around them. The other two churches that were said to have zeal, love over zeal, it would be clear for them that them staying awake is not tolerating sin in the church, but rather it is calling it out and prioritizing the importance of the gospel. Whereas the churches that had success or prioritized success over faithfulness, again, I would encourage you to, go to, to listen to those sermons to see that. The churches like Sardis and Laodicea, who prioritized their wealth, or the fact that they were once a growing church. See, for them, staying away could be going back to Jesus and repenting and realizing that they need Jesus more than they need their wealth. See, this is what staying awake looks like. Faithful living, patterned after Jesus, the one who suffered for us. And it is also us repenting when we have not done so. See, there are two things that I want to end with that we are meant to see as we close off. See, we can never speak of a God who is loving without speaking of him as being a God who judges. Because a God who loves will judge anything that is unlike him. He will judge those who come against his people. And so as his people, as we struggle in the world, as we suffer, as we are persecuted, See, our ultimate hope is that victory belongs to Jesus. If you know that song by Todd Dunnelly, he says in the song, although it does not feel like it, although it does not seem like Jesus is winning, that he has had his victory, victory belongs to Jesus. And those who have trusted in him will ultimately be vindicated. But those who have decided not to follow him will face his judgment. But today... If you have not put your faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us that today is the day to repent. That today is the day of salvation. There's an opportunity to come to this Jesus who wants to save you from the coming wrath and have you to live with him as we will see in chapter 1 and 22 in the new heavens and new earth with him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that as we look around our world and struggle with its brokenness, as we struggle with, uh, with corruption and wickedness, and struggle as well with seeing Christians being persecuted, your church being maligned and pushed aside, Christians in the workplace, in their homes, being mistreated, Lord, would you help us as Christians 
to endure all this difficulty because we know that ultimately you will vindicate your name and vindicate your people. You will bring justice at the very end. So would you help us to hold on to that? And Father, we pray for any this morning who, or rather this evening, who do not know you as yet, who in a sense have the mark of the beast, that they would turn to have the mark of the lamb, that they will be marked by his blood, that there will be a red post, a sign over their heads and over their houses that they have come to you. Lord, would you turn them to you so that they are spared from your coming judgment. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us, guys, tonight. Uh, Next week we continue in Revelation. We have two other weeks in the book of Revelation. And as you heard David saying, on the 28th, we have a praise uh, service. So please just remember to diarize that.